Hello, everybody. Welcome to Softcast, episode 14, I believe. This week, I'm going to try something a little bit different. We have a guest from the Twitter sphere, interesting chap, uh, Wayward Cloud. He recently took some time and took his vows as a Buddhist monk in the Theravada forest tradition in Thailand. And that was an interesting experience. And I thought I would get him on the show to go through it because I'm very much interested in, in these kinds of things, as you know. And it was an excellent chat. We talked about uh, a lot of things, his views on uh, meditation, uh, traditional practices, uh, various other things that I think you will be interested in. I know I certainly was. And uh, in the end, I think we, uh, we got pretty deep into some stuff and uh, spoke about a various slew of issues that we all face day to day and that uh, maybe some of his experiences and some of the techniques available to us could be extremely useful to people living in the modern world. So welcome everyone. How are you all? Uh, today we're going to try something a little bit different. I have a character some of you will know as Wayward Cloud from uh, Twitter. And uh, as per the intro, he's gone through a bit of an experience lately uh, that I think is going to be of interest uh, to everyone. So uh, greetings, Wayward Cloud, and uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so just to start off, like, cause I keep saying wayward son in my head. Um, when, when I say your name, when I was doing a bit of research for this one, but I looked up a uh, wayward cloud cause I, I was thinking like, what is a wayward cloud? I didn't really know what you meant by it. So I thought I'd just have a look. Is, is there an actual meaning to it or? Yeah, it actually comes from, uh, an old, uh, Taiwanese movie. Okay. That cause that's saw, what came up. That I saw once. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it's it's a very uh, bizarre movie. It's kind of a mixture between like uh, musical, art house flick, softcore porn, and rom com. It's, right. Yeah, it's just a very very bizarre movie, and I, I think I like the title more than I like the actual movie, just because it sort of fits how a lot of my life has gone. I think where I, I get like deeply invested in some subject or project for years at a time and then inevitably I just sort of drop it and go away when I guess. Sure. So so you must have been pretty much the only American that's probably ever seen this. But I'll just read out because I, I was kind of shocked. Um but it looks good. Um so Xiao Kang, I don't know if I'm saying that right, probably not, uh, now working as a pornographic actor meets Shang Chi once again. Meanwhile, the city of Taipei faces a water shortage that makes the sales of watermelons skyrocket. They become something to share with a guest and an aphrodisiac. That sounds uh, enticing, I've got to say. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's a very stimulating movie, but actually it's, it's one of the, like, the, like, it has barely any dialogue at all. It's a very, like, calm, chill movie with, like, so, like certain outbursts, especially, like, in the musical numbers, but... Yeah, it's, it's always just like stuck in my mind as like one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. Right, yeah. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Um, okay, so um, how is sunny Thailand treating you? You having having a good time there? I mean, you what are you what are you doing at the moment? You 
back to smoking and protecting yourself from COVID, drinking, cockfighting, stuff like that. What's <laughs> what, what are you up to at the moment? Well, unfortunately, all the the cockfighting uh, arenas just got shut down again. Yeah. And uh, where I was staying uh, previously, like the past couple of days up in the northeast of Thailand, it wasn't all that sunny. Actually, it was actually pretty cold. Like when I was still in the woods, I, I would have to sleep with like layers of blankets and like hats and sweatshirts. Like, it, I'm not used to like Thailand being that cold. So that's kind I, of I like Chiang, Chiang Mai, that kind of region. Is that kind of what you mean? Cause I, I was shocked uh, as well. No. I went there once and it was, it was freezing. Um, I was like, what, what the hell? Yeah. Uh, Chiang Mai kind of has a, the reputation of being more cold. It, it's probably actually just as cold now there as it was where I was. Um, but I was like more towards the like Konken, Kalasin area. And you like, I remember I used to live there about eight years ago. And I remember maybe like one or two days during the winter, it would be that cold, but like, I, I was actually like freezing some days. And I'm and then, like, I'm from pretty cold, like snow filled climate. Mm. So it was just kind of bizarre this, at least this year. Yeah. 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 It makes it kind of challenging. I remember I was, um, at a Zen monastery in Kyoto and, uh, it, it was snowing one day. It was absolutely freezing. There was no, uh, heating in this, uh, you know, monastery. And yeah, just, just trying to sit through that is just, it's unbelievable. Um, but these guys, they seem to do it all the time, but, uh, I don't know how they manage it. Um, yeah. So, um, I guess we'll, we'll just go back to kind of square one a little bit. Um, and if, maybe give us like a brief biographical kind of overview, uh, without obviously volunteering too much, but how did you kind of get to this point of wanting to take vows for a, uh, to become a monk? Uh, so my, my like initial sort of, uh, introduction to Thailand was I got sent here for a job in the little village where, uh, I wound up like ordaining eventually. And like this time around, just going there to stay for an extended period of time. Right. And I, I became a monk just very, very briefly back in like uh, 2012, so about yeah, eight years ago. And I like at that point, I didn't really know much about Buddhism because I'd only lived in Thailand for maybe a year or so, but I was, I was well acquainted with this, this monk in this village. Uh, he's in a sort of weird situation because he, he lives at a pretty big temple area-wise by himself, and he usually doesn't let anybody else come to stay there unless like he knows they're like, really really good character so he kind of uh screens everybody before he allows them to stay there so i've been building up this relationship with him for like a year at that time and i asked him if i could just become a monk because in, in thai society uh most males become a monk at least for a short period of time whether it be like one day or three days or however many but but some of those people just plan to do it for maybe a week or so and they just do it for, they want to do it for like their entire lives. They kind of just uh, go at it day by day, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, my, my first uh, attempt, I guess, at becoming a monk was more of a shock than anything. Because like I said, I, I didn't know, I, I hadn't like read any of the polycan and I hadn't really done much reading at all. Besides like a few meditation books here or there, but I've, I've never been 
really good at it at that point. And he, the, the monk living there, of course, didn't like forewarn me about like anything that I was like supposed to do. And it, yeah, it was just a shock, like walking barefoot down gravel paths every morning at like 4 a.m. to go get food from the, the locals and yeah, just eating once a day, uh, living in the woods where there's a bunch of pretty dangerous animals around you constantly. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was just a, it was a, just a giant shock to the system. So, yeah, I, I only lasted about uh, 15 days that first time. And I kind of went away from the, with a sort of bitter experience. And I, I kind of uh, like fell out with, with Buddhism after, like for a while after that. But then eventually like uh, came back to it. And I think what, what brought me back to it was uh, about four years ago, I, I took a trip to Nepal and did the uh, Everest base camp trek. Hmm. And that there's, there's a very strong Tibetan Buddhist community around there. And you, you interact with it pretty well if you do that trek. And it just, it sort of like sparked this sort of uh, interest in Buddhism again. And after that, I started actually reading the texts, like the Pali Canon, and just pretty much anything I get my hands on. Like there's a, a used bookstore, a few used bookstores here in Bangkok that I, I go to, and I find just all these old, like obscure Buddhist texts, and I was just devouring everything that I could at that point. Mm-hmm. And I got back in touch with the monk uh, that I knew in, in the Northeast, and at, at a certain point, after like after that trip and after getting back in touch with him, it kind of just sank in that I should give this like another try because the the first attempt was very mishandled on my part and it wouldn't sit well with me if I didn't at least try to do it again. Could we talk so, about that just quickly? So you mentioned coming away from that feeling bitter. Um, mm-hmm. What was it exactly? Was it just a terrible conditions? Was it just, did it, uh, did you have a sort of a rotten confront- confrontation with yourself or was there some psychological element that you didn't like? Like what, what happened? I, I like at this point, like in hindsight, I would say it was all with with my own mindset. Mm-hmm. Like at the, at that point, I was sort of a, I, I was a, kind of a grad school dropout, still somewhat brainwashed by Marxism and all that stuff. Like I had a I had a very different point of view on the world than I do now, mm-hmm. and it, it sort of it, it clashed with like that traditional Buddhist outlook, and I, I couldn't reconcile. Like I, I didn't have the tools to to reconcile all the differences that I saw. Like I was like, I, I couldn't understand why these rules were there or what the purpose of them was. And it, it just, yeah, it, it was all uh, my own mindset kind of thing. So I, I guess like with, with time after like my own point of view changed, I became more accepting of the, the, the Buddhist doctrine. Or the, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking uh, I've had similar experiences. Uh, maybe during Zen session, maybe one of the first ones I went to. I remember I found it extremely confronting, um, and it wasn't necessarily bad all the time. But there were there were periods where you know you're sitting for ten hours a day. Uh, you know the discipline is quite rigorous. Uh, that it can be like particularly if you're a young guy, which I wasn't. But if you're a young guy, I can imagine that could be super confronting. Like it could be difficult to manage. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that, that's exactly what it was for me. And it wasn't even so much just the the meditative aspect of it. It was just, it was more of like the monk's lifestyle. Like you have to, even though there's only one monk there, like I have to do everything for him because he's the, he's the teacher. So like mm-hmm. I have to prepare everything for him. I have to bow to him at all the right times. I can't do like the, the wrong gesture towards him because it's offensive. Like if, if he's sitting down and I'm walking by him, I have to duck my head like far enough down just to make sure that I'm showing him enough respect. Just, mm-hmm. just things like that. Mm. and yeah yeah, like there's also especially at the temple where i was at he's a very uh industrious monk he he basically is a construction worker most of the time but he's just building buildings nonstop. he's he's developing his temple like all day every day Uh so it's it it was more like uh getting a job at a construction yard almost more so than actually like being a contemplative meditative monk right interesting Okay, so you mentioned you, you you started to change your perspective on Buddhism in the years after. Uh, were there any books or um, inspirations, maybe people <clears throat> online or whatever that kind of um, started to change your perspectives about about Buddhism in general? Yeah, um, I get like the the very first books that I, I read on Buddhism were all sort of left wing American type books, like. Right uh like the beat generation type stuff but this was like over a decade ago but the so i like i guess that that's why some of the early mishaps with buddhism started with me because i always looked at it from this sort of left-wing american point of view mm-hmm. but then uh after coming back from that trip in nepal i read uh julius of all the doctrine of awakening okay and that like although there's certain inconsistencies i guess in that book from actual buddhist doctrine it has like the perfect attitude i think you need to take towards buddhism where it it is really more like a traditional almost right-wing kind of thing Mm. and that that kind of changed my perspective a lot on buddhism and i I approach it very differently from then on i guess after that yeah it did it for me as well it changes it from like an inactive passive kind of feminine you know all those wishy-washy kind of things that you, as you say, you get in this left-wing uh, conception of Buddhism. And when you read that book, man, like it just flips everything. It did for me. And I know there's heaps of other people I've spoken to that it did as well. Um, but it, it, it makes it like that kind of virile um, attempt at mastering the self. Like it's quite a risky and um, energetic endeavor. The book kind of flips the energy in a sense, the way that, for me anyway, the way that I, I perceive things. Um, I don't know much about the inaccuracies in the book, though. You mentioned there's some things that, are, you know, maybe Evola got wrong or he interpreted, interpreted differently. Um, do you want to go through some of them? Because I'm, I'm kind of interested in that. The one that comes to mind right now would be just his, uh, I don't know if he has the wrong idea necessarily about reincarnation, but he seems overly dismissive about it mm-hmm. and it, it could just be me misinterpreting what he's saying but he seems like he either seems to be saying that it it doesn't exist at all or he's just trying to kind of hone in on on how it, it's not what everybody thinks it is like there isn't a self that you know gets reincarnated into the next life it's more like you're uh you're sort of a conglomeration of 
these different elements and impulses. And, and when you get uh, deep into a sort of meditation practice, you're, you're cultivating, uh, cultivating something. And that, that something is what like, lives on after you, you die. Like, there's, a, there's a certain potential you're, you're cultivating. Mm-hmm. And after this body's death, it, it turns into a sort of kinetic energy that goes out and gets reincarnated. Mm. It's sort of the best way I kind of think about it. Sure. Yeah. It's almost like a European pagan way of looking at things. Like not not everyone deserves reincarnation. It's kind of earned by by the greatness of that individual's soul. It's kind of like a seems to me to be a, a pagan outlook in many ways. Well, yeah, it's it's like a I think it's a sort of like leveled tier. Like everything is gonna be reincarnated unless you're unless you've like transcended and gotten enlightened. Mm-hmm. But there's there's like very very bad reincarnations and there's very good ones so like if you're if you're engaged in bad practices or bad habits then your next reincarnation won't be so positive but if you're actively meditating you know following the right precepts then things will probably go a little better for you next time around yeah, sure, sure. One, of, one of the things i never really did in the early years was actually read the pali canon and the various texts uh you mentioned, did you start doing that? Like, did you actually read, you know, from the horse's mouth, uh, so to speak? Yeah, I'm, I'm still in the process of it. I, I started it about four years ago, and it's kind of an on and off thing where some, sometimes I'll get really into it, and sometimes I, I just, like, read here and there. Hmm. But I'm, I'm at the, the third of the, the fourth uh, sutra books, which is the Samyutta Nikaya. Sure. Okay, so, um, so we've changed your attitude, we've... You know, we had a bad experience, but we read some stuff. Um, so, so kind of what what then drove you to then start this process again? You know, a more recent history. Well, I guess initially it was I've always just wanted to be able to meditate and meditate well, like from the my very first inklings of hearing about it, and it, it's taken. A tremendous amount of time just because there's so much misinformation out there and so many like people teaching the wrong ways of going about it mm-hmm. so uh at, at some point i i just kind of forced it like i was just i'm gonna meditate 30 minutes in the morning 30 minutes in the afternoon no matter what and i did that without really uh reading much into it and like learning how to do it properly so it, it kind of messed me up a bit mm. and I was like, I can't, like, I, I just kind of decided, all right, right now, I, I can't just sit still and meditate. Like, I, I'm just too anxious in my mind or something. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I I sought out uh, a Tai Chi teacher here in Bangkok. And I studied Tai Chi for a solid two years, like, mm-hmm. doing it every single day. And the reason for that was just to get a sort of moving meditation. Like, it, it's a similar sort of feel but it's it's more active i guess like you you're moving your body more so it's a little bit easier to, to hone in and focus so once i did that i uh i eventually after getting pretty decent at, at doing tai, tai chi i started doing sitting meditation again and listening to uh tennis Bikabu's uh dhamma talks on on youtube mm-hmm. 
it, it, it initially started with me just listening to that in like a sort of meditation pose. And then eventually it got to the point where I didn't even need to, need to like listen to anything. I could just sit there and, you know, be calm and start the, start the sort of a cultivation you need to do for proper meditation. Mm. And from there, I went from just doing maybe 10 minutes a day all the way up to doing usually up to like two hours a day more recently. Mm-hmm. And so at some time in that point, that, that's when I decided that I, I should give the, the monk thing another try because nothing else really benefits me to the degree that that does. Like, mm-hmm. it, it seems like the most proper thing to do in my life. It, like, it, it fulfills me in a way that nothing else does. Or I don't even know if fulfill is the right word, but it, it, it's a very positive experience. And I'm always feeling best when I'm meditating or right after meditation. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have all the uh, anxiety problems that I used to or uh, anything like that. Like, it, it's resolved most of the ills that I, I've had in my life previously. So it, it's just something that makes sense to keep cultivating and, and sort of hone in on as much as possible. Hmm. So um, one of the mistakes I made with meditation is I just did breath meditation, which just, uh-huh. I have a similar thing, man. Like I'm going, God damn, this is like, I just can't do this all the time. You know, like it's, it's kind of boring. Um, and you know, as you say, if you're anxious or you have energy or you, you, you know, feel movement in your body or whatever it is, uh, yeah, people don't teach you that there's a whole range of different methods, um, you know, depending on your mood and how you want to do things. Um, so it's interesting that you say that. It's actually something that I think we get pretty wrong in the West. It's this idea that it's just breathing. Like you go, you know, one, two, three, four, like that for, you know, hours a day, which is insane, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because especially if it's not really working for you and you're not, if you're just getting angry at it, it's definitely not, not the right thing to keep doing. But uh, what, yeah, I used to do that more often than not, because that, that was the only thing that I knew about. Yeah. But I started doing some meditation retreats here in Thailand. And one of the better ones was a, a Goenka retreat. Do you know what, what that is? No idea. No. All right. Well, it's, it's at this website called dhamma.org, D-H-A-M-M-A. Yeah. .org. And there, there's these like meditation centers all over the world. And it's uh, SN Goenka. He's a Theravada teacher from Myanmar. And he, he sort of invented the the 10 day meditation retreat. Mm-hmm. And after doing that, he teaches you first the, the breathing meditation. And you only really focus on that for like the first three days. Mm-hmm. But after that, you, you go into like a, a body scan meditation. And after like doing that, that first initial 10 day retreat, that's where I notice a huge uh, like jump and like meditating abilities mm-hmm. was just sitting there and doing nothing but meditating for 10 days straight. Like you can do it for like up to 10 hours a day, basically every single day. Yeah. Wow. I concur. That's why I'm a, a kind of obsessed with the Maha Satipatthana Sutta just in general. Like, um, as you say, doing body scanning, labeling, <clears throat> all that kind of stuff is, you know, it's more interesting. Um, but it's also I- incredibly important. Like just sitting there focusing on breath is just a very small, uh, element. So it's interesting to hear you kind of went through the same thing, uh, for sure. Um, so um, just to go
go through different schools of Theravada. Which one did you choose? Is, is there like a choice? I, I know you're saying you met this construction working monk um, and presumably he's part of some kind of school or sect or something like that. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Just talk about what that sect is yeah. and maybe how it's distinct from you know, Burmese or other forms of Thai Theravada? Yeah. Um, it doesn't even feel like I really chose it because like, it was just the first like form of Buddhism that I, I actually encountered in my life when I first moved here. But this is the, uh, the Thai forest tradition or Tamayut as they call it. Um, and it's, it's strange because when I, like, when I was first initially getting into Buddhism, Buddhism before I even came to Thailand, I was more interested in the, um, Mahayana or, uh, Vajra, like Tibetan Buddhist stuff. Mm-hmm. That, that was most of the material that I read. Even Zen, I was more interested in, mm-hmm. but, uh, just coming here to live, uh, I learned a lot, like a personal experience with, with Theravada and the Thai forest tradition and, there was just uh, an ample amount of books about Ajahn Mun, like the, the sort of patriarch of this tradition and all of his disciples. And yeah, it, it was just more firsthand experience with this. And I, I guess the, the Dhamma Yut tradition was originally started by uh, King Rama IV here in Thailand, like in the 1800s. And it was sort of a a back to basics kind of reform movement because most Thai monks were kind of at the time getting too wrapped up in like magic and spells and like just not really doing the things that they're supposed to be doing as monks. Mm-hmm. So uh, King Rama the Fourth kind of saw this uh, ethnically Mon uh, monk and he ordained the first uh, Thamayut monks through him. So it's not even like the same lineages other Thai monks, like there's the, the Mahanikai is what they call them. That's like the, the most common Thai monk here. And the Damayut is uh, what are now mostly forest monks that live in uh, the northeast of Thailand. And they're usually like, they, they meditate substantially more than in general Mahanikai monks. And they tend to be more uh, strict in following the rules because honestly, in general, I would say 95 percent of monks here are following what they're like the rules are supposed to be following mm-hmm. things like handling money or so yeah devices, exactly like perhaps this is this is like the monk that i was staying with is honestly the only monk i've ever seen in person that refuses to touch money yeah wow okay interesting so um okay what did you like about theravada compared to mahayana do you think there's a difference? What do you see the difference as being? It, um, what appeals to you about Theravada compared to, you know, Tibetan Buddhism or Zen or, you know, whatever? Mostly it was just uh, a sort of thing of circumstance because after that, that trip to Nepal that I took, I was planning on just like moving there and trying to stay at a Mahayana temple. Hmm. But then I went, actually went back and talked to my Tai Chi teacher about it because he was he's sort of semi into Buddhism too. And he basically said to me, like, you've been living in Thailand for so long, you know, the language, like you don't need, like you're, you're here, like, you know, the people you need to know. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. And I should just try to stop going off in different directions and just focus on what I got. And, but over, over time, it's sort of a, it makes sense for me personally, because maybe I get this wrong about Mahayana, but there's, there's more, uh, abstractions, I guess, 
that I could potentially get wrapped up in and get misled. Whereas with Theravada, it's more, it's more stripped down. It's more like back to basics kind of thing. And it lets me hone in and focus on the, the practice a little bit better. I always thought Tibetan Buddhism was somewhat inaccessible. I was always surprised that it's as popular as it is because it's really culturally unique. You know, you have all those um, deities and devas and it's a lot of focus on things that I think are quite culturally specific. And I, even when I went to Tibet, um, I'm like, there's no way I could ever study this. Like, it's just so culturally specific. But I guess this, you know, it must work for people. It's popular, right? It's, um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised it, it caught on like it did, really. Yeah, from my impression of it is it's it's a very uh, academic sort of thing. So maybe that that fits more with the the Western mind frame where you have to study a bunch before you actually do a lot of practice. I guess. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it it seemed more interesting just because I guess I'm, I'm more of like a aesthetic kind of person, and Tibetan art is some of the best. Buddhist art out there, I think. It's amazing. Yeah. So that it, 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 it drew me to that. Like I was drawn to that initially, mm. but, uh, yeah, like it just makes more sense, I guess, for me to be in, in Theravada given how long I've been in Thailand and the people that I know. So yeah, that, that's basically why I, I chose Theravada. It, the, it sounds like it chose yeah. you, frankly, from a karmic perspective, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. It, was, it seems like it's a, Kind of thing. So it, the initiation, the actual part where you took your vows and all that kind of stuff, do you want to talk us through, you know, what happens, what that process is? Yeah, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to uh, live at the temple with uh, your teacher for about three months as a eight precept disciple. And those rules, like those rules you have to follow are the basic five rules, which are don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, don't uh, engage in sexual misconduct, and don't drink alcohol. And then on top of that, you need to not sleep on a luxurious bed, which basically means sleeping on the floor. Um, and what else are there? I almost forget it. Like, all the other ones. I, I know like if you're a 10% disciple, you're not supposed to touch money. Oh, you're not supposed to uh, listen to, listen or watch entertainment, uh, like no music or just mindless TV and you're not supposed to wear like jewelry or powder or dress up in any way, really. Anything fun don't do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interesting. Just focusing on meditation. Okay, so you, you but, uh, I, I, Sorry, go on. Yeah. After the, after you live there for three months, uh, you have to memorize, uh, a certain set of poly chants mm -hmm. and you have to recite them. And well, like it, you, you recite them in front of like a, a regional head monk, and well, it's not it's it's some recitation, and it's also him kind of asking you questions in Pali and you responding in Pali. But basically, everybody just memorizes what they need to memorize, and they go through the the ritual of it, and then you be, you get ordained as a monk, and then you have two hundred twenty seven rules to follow. Wow. Okay. So, so is there like a an initiation? If you pass this test, is there some kind of ritual or? you know, ceremony or something like that? Yeah, there's there's a ceremony where a bunch of people gather. You need to have at least four monks, which is considered a, a sankha, uh, together to ordain you. But if, if you say those Pali words in front of them and the, the 
monk who's ordaining you like grants it and, and your, your own personal teacher thinks you're good enough to do it, then you'll do it. And especially in Thailand, where literally almost every single male does this, they, they always let you stay unless you're like a tremendous waste of life, I guess. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, interesting. So how good is your Pali? Can you speak any, read it? You read Sanskrit? I, I, I try to study it on and off for a while, but it, I'm, I'm not proficient in it at all. I, I memorized like quite a few chants. I know a few words here and there, and I, I kind of get the sort of a uh, grammatical structure of it, but I, I, I'm not, I'm not very, very good at it in general. Mm, okay. So uh, let's talk about your experiences um, and uh, daily life, the disciplines, all that kind of stuff. Maybe the monastic disciplines is a good place to start. Um, like what was kind of daily life like? Because you did post some photographs of your, you know, your accommodation. Um, what, what did your day consist of, day to day? Uh, usually, if I was at the temple that day, which sometimes we went traveling to other temples in the morning, but more often than not, I woke up at about 4 a.m., uh, met the monk in the main hall, and chanted with him. And then we meditated for about 30 minutes. Then after that, I had to go to the sort of uh, the kitchen hall, I guess, and boil water for him, set everything up for him before we went out to the, the village and to get alms. Mm. So, yeah, we I prepare all that stuff. You go out, get alms, walk around barefoot in the, the neighborhood. People would give us food. And then we'd walk back to the temple, set everything up to eat. we eat, and then I'd go to my hut for majority of like the late morning and early afternoon and I could basically do what I wanted, which wound up just being reading or meditating most of the time. Mm -hmm. And then late afternoon, I would sweep the entire grounds of the temple because it was just that monk living there and me as his helper. So I spent anywhere between one to three hours sweeping leaves every day, depending on how windy it was the day before and how many leaves fell off the tree. Mm -hmm. And after that, I'd shower, meditate some more, go do evening chants with the monk, and then go back to my hut and meditate again until I went to bed. Oh, wow. Interesting. So did you get the impression this guy was, like, he'd achieved things? I, I get the impression, like, as you say, there's probably some lazy monks that just pull rank and get people to do stuff for them. But is this guy, like, an experienced meditator? Like, he was taking it seriously, do you think? Yeah, he, he definitely knew what he was talking about, at least more so than me. Like, at the very least, he's at a level above me just by the way that he taught me and the way that he kind of helped guide my, my meditations from time to time. I, I don't get the impression that he meditates as often as he probably used to, but I, I know for a fact that he meditates at least in the morning and at least at night, even though he spends most of the day kind of doing construction work and like he's, he's kind of a, bu a busybody in that way. But he, he definitely has meditative attainments, attainments, and he he has some sort of like extra worldly powers, especially like when it comes to uh, like communication with animals. There, there were a lot of animals at that temple, and his interaction with them was something like I, I've never seen before. Like he he 
yeah, he's a, he has a good relationship with his animals, I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take that how you will. I guess being a monk might be lonely, right? But, uh, yeah, no, like, like what, what, um, so what kind of relationships are we talking here? Like birds kind of flying around his head and, you know, deer he, coming he, up to him and stuff. Like what, what are we talking here? Yeah, he, he's like the animals, uh, really like him, I guess. And they, like, he can kind of suggest things for that. Like, I remember at one, one time there was like, we were setting up things for, uh, for eating in the morning and, this this dog came over and was like trying to sniff around and try to eat stuff and he kind of just like leaned over to this cat and like pointed the cat towards the dog and the cat just like sprinted over at the dog and like chased it away it was just it was bizarre <laughs> wow you're you're aware of the tiger temple and Kanchanaburi, i think it is you know the famous one how the monks have the tigers and they're just kind of walking around the place with with tigers was that the one that there was one that I know they got in trouble a few years ago for uh, like they they were doing something with the with the, the babies of the the tigers and like there were a bunch of dead tiger babies in one of the temples. Oh shit! I don't know if that's the same one. Yeah. But yeah, it, it may well be. I I haven't been there for you know a good fifteen years, maybe not that long. It was ten years ago, maybe. But yeah, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I remember walking around and these monks were just sitting around these tigers, and we we thought that maybe they're all drugged up which I still think is true. But I, I mean, from what you're describing, right? Like it could be possible that uh, you could, this guy could t- tame a tiger at least, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it depends. The, the impression that I get on like a monk's sort of uh, interaction with nature is that if you're, if you're a forest monk and you're living actually in the woods, like, following all these precepts puts you in a position where the forest is maybe chaotic, but, but you fit into it in a certain way that protects you almost. Mm. And, and like there, there, there are tons of dangers like in the forest, like every, every single day I saw either a snake, scorpion, centipede, spider, like something that could really like ruin my week or month. And you, you kind of just like you encounter it and you kind of just stay calm and, just stand your ground in a way, but don't act aggressive. Hmm. And you're kind of just left alone, I guess. It, it, it depends on your karma, I guess. And mm-hmm. that's sort of what the whole Thai force thing is about. Is like you're putting yourself in these dangerous situations just to see how much you actually believe what the Buddha taught and if it's true. Wow. Like you're, you're testing it out in a way. Do they still spend time in the forest? Yeah, like... Uh, my, my hut at least was like in the actual woods and some of the other monks that I came across, they, they go out on certain excursions to certain areas. Like one monk said that he was in a, like a heavily wooded area that was surrounded by elephants. And like, sometimes they would just go charging past and you kind of just, like you said, you just kind of sit in your tent and you're like, like all right, let's see if this elephant tramples me or not. <laughs> wow. Testing yeah. fate. Yeah, yeah so it's sort of like uh, just being macho for macho's sake, but there's, there's some sort of appealing thing about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the prescribed meditations, do you have a specific method? Do they have like, is it like a university course? So you, you do this bit, then you do that bit, then you achieve this, and then, you know, so on and so on. Or is it just kind of do what you want? Just if you like, you want to try this out, then try that out. Is there a, 
you know, like a schedule of meditations? Uh, I wouldn't say there's a schedule. There, there's kind of a, I guess a roadmap hmm. for what you want to achieve. Um, actually what I would suggest, despite what we said earlier, I would suggest the breath meditation is sort of a starting ground kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then from there you can either do a, a body scan sort of thing. But actually, most of the time when I was at the temple, I sort of just wanted to go back to focusing on breath meditation. And I did that for the, the first month, basically because I wanted to try to see if I could achieve jhana. And that's, you, you only, I think, from what I understand, you only achieve jhana through that satipatthana mm -hmm. sort of like breath meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like that, that's, that's the direction that I wanted to go. And after I, I got to like a certain point in there, I, I asked the monk like what I should like hone in on with the breath meditation because more often than not, people are focusing on their heads somewhere, like their eyes or their, their brain. And what he suggested to me was to move it to uh, my heart area, which for me personally, that, that's where like a lot of my, my tension lies because I like I've been sitting at a desk for most of my life. So like I just lean on like my, my left hand and there's just been like little tension there so mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a very uncomfortable sort of area to focus on for me but honestly it's, it's been one of the like most uh beneficial things that i've done like it's it's changed my entire meditation process just focusing on the, the heart area as opposed to like the head area and he initially said to do it because when you're focusing on your head area you're thinking too much but actually i, I think i think more in the hard area. So like it's sort of like a level up in a way, like it's, it's more difficult for me to focus in on it. And now if I go back to like that, like how I used to meditate where I was focusing at like around my head area, it seems to be a lot easier. Yeah, sure. It reminds me of the Zen, um, the concept of Hara or Hara, which is, uh, basically the Japanese way of describing that area, the belly, the abdomen rather. Um, so when you, you reach a certain level of proficiency, and I've only really ever achieved this, I think twice, satisfactorily. Um, and, and I found that um, when I was sitting, the abdomen actually automatically starts breathing without your conscious direction, if that makes sense. And I've, I've only yeah, yeah. really had that state a couple of times. Did you kind of have a similar experience? Yeah, well... What what like actually happened about a month into staying at the temple this time? Uh, like it's it's strange to talk about because I like if I say like I achieved jhana that that's kind of strange because the way that you sort of achieve that is by fully experiencing that there is no I that there is no self hmm. like that that's how you kind of fall into that state. But like I described what happened to me to my teacher monk and he was like yeah that's that's what that's jhana that's what that is wow. And it's sort of like a, it's a, I remember when I was at my, at one of the, the first Goenka retreats that I did, I, I got to a point where I was like almost going to that state, but it, it like, it just scared me. Like, cause you feel like you're just getting shot out of your body in a way. Mm. And it, like I jumped and it, I like couldn't go into it then. But when I was at the temple, like you sort of just like, you, you can feel every single pore of your body. Like it, it's a very like pleasurable sensation. Like, you can, you can feel your breath like in a way that you've never felt it before. It's 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 a different like level of consciousness. Right. 
and uh, it's really hard to explain, especially like given like English grammar, how you have to say I did this, I did that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, like I haven't been able to achieve it since that that time. And what the monk told me was basically like, because you, you're talking about it, it's going to be even harder to get back to because now you're like, you think you've achieved something and that's just like, that's going to just like distract you and block you in all future attempts to get again. Because your ego is going to want to try and achieve it again kind of thing. Like, well, yeah. Like a, I'm going to optimize this. I'm, I'm going to achieve it. Yeah. It's kind of self-defeating. Well, yeah, I'm probably like, fucking it up for you right now. Just talking about it, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, doing, I'm doing it for myself because I, I keep like, mentioning it to like everybody else i'm I, like I, I mean that's like interested in this thing mm. and uh that, that's that's one of the reasons why buddhist monks aren't allowed to talk about that sort of stuff like that, that that's an actual rule like they, they can't mention their attainments in jhana because it's it's just it's gonna mess them up in some way mm. Mm. so um this obviously you got this state of consciousness um you, what you'd probably describe as a peak peak state i guess um yeah do you lose that or do you maintain that perspective, you know, maybe to a lesser degree during the day um, or, or do you deepen it? Do the disciplines and, and the lifestyle help you deepen this state of mind? And once yeah, you for went, sure. it, went into the real world, um, did it just kind of dissipate? How, how does that, yeah, how like, that work for you? Well, the, the precepts were definitely there to get you in the, the mode for doing it. Because honestly, like, even though I meditate every day, sometimes like one or two hours a day, I would never be able to, to get into that jhanic state again, like living in a city like this. The only times that I've ever even like came close to doing it or actually doing it were when I was in a retreat or in a, in, in a temple setting. And you, you have to be following those rules because it, it just it, it cultivates like a certain frame of mind that allows you to sink into that that other state of consciousness because otherwise like just everything that you do on a daily basis i think distracts you from being able to achieve that mm -hmm. and but but like after you after i achieve that that state uh it, it de like it's still kind of like in a processing sort of situation with me like having that as like a frame of reference like all right i like that was an experience and it, it sort of defines everything else you do after that because you know that there's a, a different state that you can access if you just put in the right amount of effort into it. Like there, there's, there's a pleasure you can get just from your own self. Like you don't need to have any sort of other conditions. If you, if you, it's actually a deconditioning kind of thing. Like you, you, you strip away all the things that usually distract you. And if you just by, by like sheer focus, and attention like you can achieve sort of very very blissful state it's it's an interesting point i again it was at a zen session this is my last one uh last year before the you know the world got aids um we uh it was a 10-day one and uh, a zen session is like a torture well it is for me anyway because like i'm a big guy i find it hard to like i can't sit cross-legged so i use a bench but even then, that's kind of, you know, it's difficult to sit there for 10 hours a day. Like, that's just, for me anyway, it's super hard. Um, but, but I remember I, similar experiences, nothing like what you're describing, but um, just, just really deep states of Zen meditation, um, which is sounding a bit different to what you guys are doing. But anyway, um, and I'll never forget when it was all over, 
um, I drove to the airport from the center and it was the most pleasurable experience of my entire life. Like I was just like in the moment, like, I'm just like, oh fuck, I'm driving. This is incredible. This is just incredible. And everything was vivid. The, like the environment, just everything I was looking at. And I'll never forget that experience. But as you say, it's kind of like, I just need myself. And you have this realization that you, you don't really need all this other stuff. Um, th- there is that, as you say, that level of consciousness where you're like, yeah, I, I could wander around a forest like that quite happily. <laughs> like you wouldn't need yeah. anything else, right? Yeah. Like even, even though like currently I'm sort of in a, a weird sort of hangover from living at the temple for three months. Now I'm like back in the world and getting sucked into things that are probably just a waste of time. Like it, it like once you come out of that, like temple, like sort of state, you, you definitely see things like through a new, new light. And even if like, you're not like planning on becoming a monk for like your entire life or anything, like it's still good to go back and just block yourself off. Like, follow certain rules to be able to have a good interior life. And then when you come back, you kind of see the world in a new way. And that kind of, uh, that, that stops from like sliding into depression or getting too much anxiety or getting bored or, or anything like that. Like it always makes you kind of refresh your situation every time you do a retreat like that. Do, do you think you're a good monk? Like do you follow the precepts um, and everything outside of the monastery? Like you're not, obviously there's, all the other rules like handling money, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of um, the bigger ones, you know, the five precepts, do you, do you follow them religiously? Like you take it seriously? Yeah, I, I try to do the, the five precepts as best as I can. The only one that I, I usually have any problem with is uh, like I still kill mosquitoes and right. stuff like that every once in a while. But I, I didn't do it at the temple, which was like the, one of the hardest things I could do. Like Man. There, there was an atrocious amount of mosquitoes there. But I, I like if I'm at like my mindset is sort of if I'm at the temple, I'm definitely following the rules no matter what. Like mm. there's there's no way I'm breaking the rules there. Yeah. As I'm like outside, I'm sort of more lax with it. But overall, like I I do my best not to lie. I don't engage in what I consider to be sexual misconduct. I don't know if anybody else would <laughs> consider it that way. It's but a subjective uh, uh, matter is it or yeah, uh, so, somewhat. Basically, don't don't. Uh, uh, engaged with any anybody that has a partner already, I, right. I would say. Okay. Right. Yeah. Quite- but I, I don't I I don't drink either. I haven't drank in like over a decade. So good that's, for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's one I have trouble with. Yeah, I'd I'd be uh, I'd be dreaming of genociding mosquitoes if I was in that <laughs> environment because like obviously Australia's mental as well. Um, man, like I uh-huh. I don't know how you did that. It's crazy. So yeah. is, is it just everything? Bugs, mosquitoes, can't touch them. They're sacred. It's just yeah. You can you can do it on accident, but like right. if there's any uh, like intention in your mind, then it's it's considered a going against the rule. Wow. Okay. So how do you manage that? Like in a an actual you know because you don't want to get dengue fever or malaria or something like that. So what do you do? You just keep. I had them some. Off? Yeah, like I had some bug spray that was like somewhat effective, right. but otherwise you kind of just, you, you stay in your mosquito net and you, there, there's certain times of the day where they're not as bad, but then at a certain time of the day, you just got to 
be in a mosquito net or, or wrap yourself up pretty well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I always there you go. I I never thought um, people really actually did that. Um, there's a temple near here. That's a Thai, uh, sorry, a, a Tibetan Buddhist temple, um, and they have that on the on the toilets. So like, please shut the toilets because the bugs might get in and drown. I'm like, are you guys serious? Like, but there you go. It's obviously a you know these people take it seriously, which is you know it's commendable. Good, you know, good yeah. for them. Um, so you've, you've had this interesting meditative, uh, experience. Um, is there anything else that, that you think is, is, is worth mentioning for people that do meditate? Like, uh, just, just in terms of, uh, methodology or, you know, um, any tips, stuff like that. Yeah. I think like the most important thing is just trying to make a, a habit out of it. Like, even if you're only doing it five minutes a day, just try to do it at least every day. And I would say the best thing to do is to do it more, have more sessions during the day, as opposed to like having a longer session. Like if you it, like, it's better to meditate like two times, 30 minutes a day, as opposed to one time for an hour, hmm. just because it like, it's sort of like a, a little pick me up, I guess, in a way. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult because there's so many conflicting messages for, how to meditate. And I think the reason for that is because certain methods work better for other people. Like, uh, for some people, the, the breathing thing won't work too well. Some people, the, the meta or as they call loving kindness meditation might not work so well, uh, for others it might. So it, it might be best just to like kind of test the water and see what resonates best with you. Hmm. What, one of my interests is the crossover into uh, different forms of psychotherapy. So I don't know if you're aware of uh, Wilhelm Reich, um, people like that that did body therapies um, for, I suppose, you know, psychiatric reasons as a way to try and work out neurosis and stuff like that. And I'm, I, I'm big on the idea that as as Westerners, you know, we have our own special kind of uh, neurotic behavior and character structure, and we kind of yeah. carry that in our bodies. Uh, one of the things I noticed with my Zen uh, work is that I, I feel like the tension in my body kind of dissipates, but you get all sorts of pains all over your body. And, and I feel like this is kind of a, a reflection of that uh, psychophysiological state. And, and that, that's kind of what your character is in some sense. Um, during your meditations, did you notice changes in your body? in terms of tension, um, muscular stuff, like, was there anything like that that you noticed that, that yeah, kind of had an impact on things? Yeah, for sure. Like, as I was mentioning with like focusing on the heart area, that's like where a lot of my tension is. Sure. And it's just, it's, it's insane how many memories from childhood, like not even like traumatic ones, but just like random ones are just like kind of stuck in your body. And when you focus on them, they, they kind of, unleash in a way that they're, they're kind of like stuck in, in staff or something. And then you hone in on it with like attention and like attention kind of makes it melt away. And like, just like relive all these, these like moments in your life that you almost forgot about in a way, like it's all kind of stored in your, your tense muscles or, or whatever else. Hmm. Definitely something I noticed. I, I remembered stuff that I'm like, you know, what the fuck? I haven't thought about that since I was, you know, 10, just stuff that you would yeah, never yeah. think of. Uh, you know, ever in a million years, just in your day to day. Um, so there's definitely something to that, I think. 
I think um, yeah. meditation is effectively a good method of undoing your personality. Obviously, that's why Buddhists do it. But um, and I think that can make it quite challenging for Westerners if they undergo like these extreme processes, particularly what you did. Like I would imagine people could go uh, pretty crazy from uh, from doing it. Did you? Yeah. Have, like, did you have any like intense kind of stuff come up? Yeah, and even like at uh, at every meditation retreat that I've I've been to, somebody inevitably winds up like breaking down crying at some point. Right. Yeah. And like like even in my own like meditation sessions at at this temple last time, that's that's even happened to me at like a few occasions. Like there's just like it's not even things that like bad happen to me, but it's just like an overwhelming sort of uh, emotion that like you you that like I blocked out apparently, and I just hadn't thought about, and then like just comes like surging up out of nowhere and yeah like that's not as like as intense as it got for me but like i've heard stories about people like actually losing their mind or committing suicide at these things so like 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 meditation isn't just like a it's it's like it's serious stuff like it has to be kind of you gotta make sure you're doing it the right way it can kind of lead you off in a bad direction at times if you're you're not doing it right which is why i, I think it's like essential that you have a an actual teacher to kind of guide you when, you when you're at least when you're like in the most advanced stages sure yeah i mean um it is powerful people do underestimate it and one of the things that really irks me is this whole movement like this kind of how would you describe it like a tim ferrissy kind of like oh I'll just meditate to optimize my mind and like all this kind of shit like it just it gets to me because it kind of misses the point um you know and, and as you say it is a serious thing Particularly if you undertake it in this manner, it, it'll bring up stuff. It'll it'll kind of fundamentally change you in a way. Yeah, and like those people that are that are kind of going after it just to like ease their mind, like it is going to ease your mind. But the way that it does it is it makes you confront things that you don't want to confront, hmm. and like it's a sort of it's a dangerous proposition. I mean, it's it's an effective way to eventually ease your mind, but in order to do that, you need to come face to face with the things that you're avoiding. Mm -hmm. Sure. I guess it's, it's lucky people are lazy and they don't get to that point. Probably. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, awareness. That's the thing I wanted to talk about. So I, I had a, one of my Zen, uh, masters on, on this, uh, show and he did this like amazing, uh, speech on, on awareness. Awareness is something that really interests me. And he, he kind of treats it as something that's separate. Like it's not, not something you can train. It's not a muscle. It's not like going to the gym. I'm going to train my awareness, which is often the way it's portrayed uh, by, by various people. Um, what are your thoughts on awareness? Like, do you have any thoughts on it? What do you think it is? Um, what, do you, what do you think the function of it is with human beings? Uh, did you have any direct experiences with what you would consider awareness? I know it's a kind of a bit of a flimsy question, but I'd like to hear on, on that since you did spend a, a lot of time meditating and talking to monks and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, the way that I, I currently think about it, which it could be completely wrong, but uh, there's the five aggregates, at, at least in uh, like Theravada Buddhism, which are uh, form, perception, feelings, uh, mental or volitional formations, which is kind of a 
So it's a weird word for what it actually is, and uh, consciousness. And the way that those five operate together to sort of give you a sense of self is that consciousness is sort of like the, the, the traveling element that goes to exist in those four other things. So like if you're meditating and you're, you're, sign up, you're, you're kind of like honed in on your feelings, your consciousness is existing in the feeling. If your mind is like feeling like is, if your consciousness is like obsessed with thinking about like your, your physical body, that's it's, it's like existing in the, the form element. If you're having like a memory of something, it's existing in the perception element. And then the other one is the, the Pali word for it is sankara, and they always translate it as like mental uh, or volitional formations. But really, what my monk teacher told me was that sankara is just literally everything. Like it's it's the most vague thing you can think of. So like it's a thought, it's a it's a bed, it's a light post, it's it's like it's everything inside and outside. It's just a thing. So if it's anything else, it's your consciousness is existing in that sankara. And the way that I think of awareness is that it's sort of a more concentrated version of consciousness. Um, like when you're meditating, or like, like for instance, if you're just like sitting there mindlessly watching TV, you're conscious, but you're not really aware. Mm. But when you're meditating, you're conscious and you're, you're super like honed in. It's almost like putting a magnifying glass on the consciousness and, and that's awareness. Like you're, it's an extension of consciousness, but it's it's not something that can necessarily be developed like like your uh, Zen teacher said. Mm. Uh, but it's something that can be explored, I mm. think. And you can kind of zoom in on it, I would say. And I think that that's kind of what the the jhana sort of experience that I had was like. It's it's more like it's it's like a level of consciousness that like. It's, it's sort of like if you had like a, a bed sheet of sorts and like you put your hand underneath it and like there's like a little mound kind of going up from the bed. Like it's just sort of like stretching the, the limits of consciousness, I guess, in a way. Mm -hmm. Sure. So it's, it's as if you're opening yourself up to it as opposed to training it like a muscle. Yeah. And it's... Uh, it's got nothing to do with the self. So like if you're, if you're like actively trying to do it to like strengthen your awareness muscle or whatever, or else you want to think about it, like that's counterintuitive. Like you kind of just gotta, you gotta just gotta be there with it and let it act on its own way. Hmm. I, I think it's really important. I think it's important for uh, people in our circles uh, to have an increased awareness, particularly these days, when your attention is being consistently uh, taken away uh, by various things, media, whatever it is, I think it's really important to um, to to have these skills. Do you agree with that, or do you think it's just pretty much not really worth doing unless you're really going to take it seriously, like say in your case? No, absolutely. I think it's definitely important to increase your awareness, especially nowadays. Like, it, it's sort of like there's a old adage, I guess, in like in Hinduism about the Kali Yuga, where like, if you if you chant during the Kali Yuga, you get even more merit just because it's it's more important to speak good words during the Kali Yuga. Um, and in the same way, it's it's even like the littlest amount of 
like attention on awareness or cultivation of awareness or whatever, however else you want to, you want to phrase it, it, it sort of uh, generates that same amount of merit. And honestly, like even if even if you're just meditating to not look at a screen for five minutes, I still think that's like incredibly beneficial as opposed to just not meditating at all. Like even the littlest bit can eventually grow into something more, especially if you, if you realize the benefits of it. Yeah. I think there's this notion with like, say the BAP people or something like that, that if you meditate or if you try to cultivate awareness and uh, that kind of thing, that it takes away from some sort of vitality and you're stunting it and you're just, you know, uh, basically becoming a recluse from life. I, I saw someone post recently that, you know, you shouldn't be stoic. They use the word stoic, but I think effectively what they meant is that you should just follow impulse, like uh, some sort of ancient Greek mythological character of some sort, um, which I disagree with. I, th I don't think anyone probably ever did that. But um, what, what do you think about that? Do you see that there's a dichotomy? Personally, I think it's a false dichotomy, but there does seem to be a rejection in these circles of this kind of thing, like what you've done, for example taken vows yeah. and you know uh gone away from the world for a little while yeah I, like to be honest I, I only got on twitter for like the, the first time this year like when the, when the lockdown happened and it was like after my first attempt at trying to go live at the temple and get my visa sorted out and and like the only reason i, I got on was because uh i was listening to, i started listening to uh right-wing dharma squads last year sure and that 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 sort of like exposed me like oh there's a somewhat like right-wing online buddhist community on twitter so like that that's why i eventually got on and i'm still sort of like trying to edge my way around this it's it's, it's very bizarre mm -hmm. to me like i i i mean I'm, I'm totally entertained by it and i'm sort of getting more wrapped up in it than i should but yeah it, it's 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 fun um but as far as it goes like just following your impulses uh my, my whole thing is like, I, I need to follow a, a tradition that is from outside myself. Like, I don't want to make up my own rules because they, they could be, uh, they could come from sources that like are just sort of nefarious. Like it could just be like, like what your, what your mind does is it takes like everything you experience and it tries to like work out its own way of like, getting organized like in a hierarchy in your mind, like how you want to, like what you should, what you want to focus on. And for me, I've always found more success in like following an actual doctrine that's like tested over a long period of time. So like, I I'm more willing to believe that the Buddhist's path is correct. Like following the rules from the, from the scriptures that are given as opposed to like following my own sort of idea of what, I should or shouldn't do. Like I'll, I'll trust the Dharma more than I'll trust myself most of the time. When you practice this stuff, right, you notice how little of what you think yourself is is actually constructed by you. So what I mean by that is all these memories come up, you notice interactions with your parents, your culture, <clears throat> all these things that have come together to form 
this idea of self that orientates you through the world. My, my problem with this notion that you can just go and chimp out and become still sort of, you know, uh, Homeric, heroic character uh, is, is that you are not a construction of pure Nietzschean impulse. You're a construction of your culture. You're a construction of child-rearing practices in your culture. So when you, you act down on what you think is your, your impulse, like an impulse, like what is that? Is it yours? It's probably not of your construction, if you catch my drift. It's not genuinely your impulse. And I think what's interesting is that Buddhism kind of, particularly these techniques, even if you want to separate them from the, the more religious and dogmatic elements of Buddhism, I think you can still derive benefit because you start to have these realizations that you are a construct, but mostly not a construct of yourself. You're kind of like an onion and you have all these layers of influences that you had nothing to do with. And I think, do you agree that Buddhism kind of uncovers these things when you start to practice meditation and that kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. Like that, that's sort of why I, I try as hard as I can to like make the, the Buddhist point of view as much as I understand it, like my, my dominant point of view, because it, it just, it separates you from everything that you can get wrapped up in. Like you're literally getting as far away from everything you think that is yourself as, as you can. And it's usually like, it's more often than not things that are not beneficial to being yourself. And, and like there's a, was a saying that I forget who said it. Some Buddhist scholar they said, "Like, don't believe everything that you think." And that's sort of what I keep keeping my mind. Like, yeah, these these aren't my thoughts. Like, quote unquote, these are just thoughts that are passing through, and you really don't have to have any interaction with them if you don't want to. Hmm. Like, they're just they're just things. They have nothing to do with you. People really grab their thoughts tight, right? They really take them seriously. I think I, I yeah. spend a lot of time like shit canning people for just being so goddamn verbose all the time. Like, I feel like they're trying to construct these kind of uh, linguistic maps of reality as if that is like, I've just got to put the right combination of words together and then I'll figure the entire thing out. Like, I just think it's real goofy. Um, yeah. I, I used to kind of be that way, but what really did it for me was getting into meditation and just having those experiences uh, of the moment that reality is literally just there all the time anyway. And that, that kind of thing's kind of pointless in, in some sense. Maybe interesting and maybe fun. But ultimately, you, you can't talk yourself out of what you are. Does that make sense? You need something different, yeah. right? Yeah, I was in like a similar position about a decade ago. Like I was on the path of being like an academic sort of literary type and like it, it like the, the sort of phoniness of everybody in academia really got to me. And then like when I discovered meditation, it, it's it became more clear what had substance and what was just like syntactical. Mm. And I wanted to be more of like the substance, like experiential, practical type. What, what's your position on Western philosophy, you know, continental philosophy? I mean, is there anyone that you like? It's, what do you generally think about it? Well, I came from like a very, very Marxist background at first. So there's a like, I still, and like I can understand Marx to some degree more of like his uh, analysis of like what capital is more so than like his projections of what it's going to lead to. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, I'm actually sort of just just recently getting back into it. Like I'm I'm trying to go through Kant at the moment. And, oh, yeah, that's uh, quite the yeah. task. Good luck. Yeah, no, it's it's rough. Uh, but I'm trying to I'm trying to like work my way through the Western philosophy stuff because I, I've been like so entrenched in Buddhism like almost exclusively for the past four or five years or so. So uh, yeah, I'm just trying to broaden my horizons a bit. What do you think about it? Do you think it's useful? Do you think it's just is it interesting? What what, what is it? So far, it's it's pretty interesting. Like. Yeah. If I'm if I spend like maybe an hour or so reading Kant, like that that hour is kind of like what in the world is going on, and then then like the next day I'll be like it'll have sort of processed and like I'll think about it like sort of a- after a while, and then it, it I'm like oh that kind of makes a little bit more sense. So at the very least, it's making me think about things a little bit differently, mm-hmm. and I, I I can kind of get some positive glimmers from it the day after I read it. Mm. Yeah, it would take a while, a while to process. I just put it down. I'm like, man, I, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> better, better things to do. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know, just pretty much anything. Um, yeah. What about Nietzsche? You know much about him. Um, I'm, I'm kind of interested yeah. how he fits with Buddhism. Same with Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer uh, thought Buddhism was, was kind of a confirmation of his philosophy. Is it pretty similar, right? Uh, I actually, I, I've never read any Schopenhauer. I, I, I read uh, the Spokes of Arthur That was one of my, my first like Western philosophy books that I ever read back when I was uh, in university. Hmm. And I didn't really understand it much back then, but I actually, I read it again while I was at the temple. And there, like, I got more out of it this time around, but uh, it, it really doesn't connect too much with me. Hmm. I like the idea of, like, the eternal return just as like a sort of a mental entertainment kind of thing. And I'm sure there, there's more that can be expounded on it, but it, it, it just doesn't really click with me all that much. Hmm. Yeah. I think Buddhism is probably for me anyway, the only uh, religion that is sufficiently dealt with, with nihilism or modern nihilism in, in some way. So I think, yeah, like when I, when I see people struggling with these things, I don't really get it because I'm like this. Well, it's over here. They've already done it, right? Like you can just go and, you know, the Buddha talks about it. I don't see why yeah. it's this huge problem. Yeah, the way that I think about it is like nihilism is sort of like a is just like the passive, like the passive mode of being, and Buddhism is like the more positive counterpart of it. Like, hmm. like they're both to some degree not exactly saying like all is nothing, but in Buddhism, you're being active about it. Like you're, you're doing like the heroic version of it. Whereas in nihilism, you're just kind of giving up and like throwing your hands in the air. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, back to this notion of Buddhism in the West, um, I'm putting together some meditations because I think like it's pretty important. Just some things that like I kind of wish I had when I was starting out in the path. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and make it available to everyone. So I, I genuinely think it's like useful to people, um, particularly yeah. in our circles, super useful. Um, do you think Buddhism eventually can save the West? Big question. Is uh, it possible something like it? Because obviously it's going to piss our Christian brothers off to no end. But sometimes I have this feeling I'm just, I'm, I'm just not sure Christianity can do it. Maybe it can. Don't know. What do, you, what do you think about that notion? 
Yeah, I I don't know if I have a definitive answer on it. I, I like uh, I like where General uh, uh, Panabasa is sort of going with it. He wants to sort of make a new a new sect, I guess, out of it, or like that, that's like his idea at the moment. Where there's uh, your your sort of initial step isn't necessarily like becoming a monk if you want to be part of it, but mm-hmm. there's like a there's some like aesthetic practices to follow and, and rules to follow, but it's not as extreme as, as going like straight on into becoming a monk mm-hmm. because it, it's just, it's just way too much for the Western mind yeah. at this current state. Mm-hmm. So uh, as far as like saving the West, I, I think it'd be beneficial like on the personal level, which I think that's the only way to sort of save people on a more, uh, population level i guess like mm-hmm. you you need to you, you need to like fix yourself before you can fix anything else so it, it could maybe more so than, than other religions but it just depends on how much it takes off and how much it gets diluted because the thing about buddhism is like whatever culture it enters into it sort of gets into a symbiosis with it like it, it buddhism changes that culture and that culture changes buddhism so it, it depends on that sort of oil and water mixture when it integrates into the U.S. because, or not the U.S., but like in the Western world, because so far it's been, I think, highly misrepresented. Mm. And there just needs to be more people that know what they're talking about, being more vocal about uh, what the true essence or what the true rules of, of Buddhism actually are. Mm. So, yeah, like like you said, like you doing a sort of a guided meditations is a, is a great thing, I think. Very beneficial. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I think the tools, probably more so than maybe the theological aspects, are probably important for people. You can get a lot of benefit from it. Even people are Christians or whatever, I think that they can derive benefit from sitting, for example, or learning how to breathe properly, just all that kind of stuff. Could yeah. benefit them. Yeah, yeah for sure. So I guess, uh, geez, what, an hour and a half now. Um, do you have any... Oh, wow closing words anything you want to tell us anything else that's uh, relevant you think to the uh, to the audience um uh, yeah i would just suggest uh trying to build up a, a sort of meditative habit just see how it goes for you if you're brand new or if you've like already dabbled into it a bit try to try different methods try uh doing it longer just get into a good routine of it and watch the benefits unfold cool great advice